Our gospel reading, as Meredith just shared with us, is the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. It happens on the same day that the women go to the tomb and find it empty and then go back to report to the disciples what they've found. So let us listen for and hear God's holy word. Now, on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you're walking along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? Jesus asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it's almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in and stayed with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were our hearts not burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May your good news come, O Lord, not only in the word spoken, but in and through the power of your Holy Spirit and with full assurance. Amen. It's near dusk on that first Easter Sunday when two travelers set out walking from Jerusalem. We know almost nothing about them, except that they were followers of Jesus and that one is named Cleopas. They lived together, maybe as husband and wife, in a one-store, one-gas-station, one-stoplight, backwater type of town called Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. 
Archaeologists have uncovered many of the cities mentioned in the Bible, Bethlehem, Nazareth, Capernaum. But interestingly, Emmaus has never been found. You can't just map it in Google Maps, and maybe with good reason. In his book, The Magnificent Defeat, Frederick Buechner suggests that Emmaus is likely no place in particular. But, he writes, the place where you go in order to escape, a bar, a movie, wherever it is, we throw up our hands and say, let the whole thing go and hang. It makes no difference anyway. Emmaus is buying a new suit or a new car or smoking more cigarettes than you really want or going to a cocktail party just for the sake of cocktails. Emmaus may be going to church on Sunday. Emmaus is whatever we do or wherever we go to make ourselves forget. That's what Cleopas and his companion are doing, trying to forget. We had hoped, they say. We had hoped that Jesus would be the one to redeem Israel. Hoped in the past tense. No longer the current reality. We had hoped. And we've all been down that road. And you may even be currently on it. It's the road of disappointment and dreams that never materialized. It's the long walk to the locker room after your teams lost the championship. It's walking into an empty apartment when the relationship is over. It's the divorce being finalized. It's the long drive home after your loved one has died. Home to a dark house. Home to a pile of unopened mail. Home to life as normal if there is such a thing as normal ever again. We had hoped. We believed things might really change, but we were wrong. He died. It's over. As they walk, they talk about the things that had happened that week. When someone you love dies, you talk about him or her. You tell stories. Remember the time or remember when he said, remember the twinkle in her eye when she smiled? That's why we have receptions after memorial services, so we can tell the stories. And as they walk, a stranger joins them. Luke tells us, the readers, that it's Jesus, but the disciples don't get that heads up. For them, this is a stranger who's got to be the only person on earth who hasn't heard about the execution that happened just outside Jerusalem. They talk to him, though. They pour out their hearts about their disillusionment, about how they had hoped that Jesus was going to bring the promised reign of God. He listened to what they had to say before finally speaking himself with that gentle kindness, that Christ-like tenderness that we've all come to expect from him. In a flood of compassion, Jesus turns to them and says, what are you, stupid? Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have declared. You idiots. Have you never read your Bibles? Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then he goes on to explain to them everything from the scriptures, beginning with Moses and the prophets, continuing to that very moment with the three of them walking together on the road to nowhere in particular. 
By the time they reach Emmaus in their home, the two disciples do the first smart thing that they've done all day. They invite the stranger to stay the night and to join them for dinner. Breaking the bread. That's what did it. Not the voice, not the face, not the scripture recital or the theology lesson or the prophetic commentary. It's the bread in his hands. Taken, blessed, broken, given. The exact same way he did at the Last Supper. Taken, blessed, broken, given. The same way he fed the 5,000 on the hillside. Taken, blessed, broken, given. They recognize him. And then just as as suddenly as he appeared, he vanishes. Seven times in the gospel, Jesus appears to his followers after the resurrection. Seven times. And never once is it anywhere they expected. Behind locked doors, breakfast on the beach, a stranger on the road, a gardener at the tomb. Jesus never shows up in the ways anyone would anticipate, but always unexpectedly by surprise. He does the same to us. When it feels like the bottom's fallen out, when we wonder whether our lives mean anything, when things are most complicated and most confusing, that's when we're most likely to see him. Not in a blaze of unearthly light, Beekner says. Not in the midst of a sermon. Not in the throes of some religious daydream. But at supper time or walking along the road. He never approaches from on high, but always in the midst of people, in the midst of real life, and in the questions real life asks. There's an ancient heresy. It's been around for a long time, but we still hear it today. The notion that we encounter God, the sacred, the holy, not in this world, but apart from our day-to-day lives, in another realm, away from this world and this existence. Somewhere in the sweet by and by, we say. The idea is that if you want to meet Jesus, you have to put some distance between yourself and the noise and the busyness of life. Go on retreat or go deep inside in meditation. Shut out the world. It's a reflection of the way the ancient Greeks understood the universe. As far as they were concerned, there were two realms. The material realm of human bodies and decay and death, the world in which we live and love. And then there's the spiritual realm, apart from everything finite and mortal and sensual, the ethereal world, a world of spirit. The early Christians who had converted from Judaism knew nothing of this kind of dualism. But over time, As Gentiles joined the ranks, Christianity began to be influenced by Greek philosophy, and the heresy snuck in. By the Middle Ages, Christians had become convinced that the world was a bad place that needed to be avoided and escaped. Religion, they thought, should deliver you from the world with all its messiness and the flesh with all its temptations. Sex was for the purpose of reproduction, period. Clergy should be celibate. The church should build an alternate world to represent the holy realm of God. 
There was the city of God and the city of man, according to St. Augustine. Everything heavenly is good. Everything earthly is bad. Part of what the Protestant Reformation was about was to reframe all of that. There's only one city, the city of God and humanity. The city of God is the city of man, according to John Calvin. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. This life, this world, this is God's good creation, shaped and blessed and loved by God. We still get caught up in it, though. Believing that if God comes to us, it'll be in some otherworldly experience, something extraordinary, some emotional upheaval, some lightning bolt out of the sky, or in the midst of a deeply spiritual experience of prayer and meditation. We Presbyterians tend to assume that if God comes to us, it'll be after we've read enough books and understood enough theology, after we've written the perfect creed and arrived at the satisfactory answer to life's most persistent questions. But this story, this story of two people on the road to Emmaus, says that all those assumptions are just dead wrong. Jesus shows up in the midst of the messiness and the chaos and the muck of everyday life. When you're crawling your way through a pit of despair, Jesus may show up, as the friend who gets down on her hands and knees and quietly crawls with you. When you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, Jesus may show up as the officer at the bank who takes your hand and leads you through the red tape of wills and insurance claims and safety deposit boxes. When you're new to town and dreading the first day of middle school, Jesus may show up as the boy whose locker's next to yours who says, hey, you want to eat lunch together? What does Jesus look like to you? I heard a story in a sermon once, a story from John Buchanan, who I've shared before, was the senior pastor at Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago. It's a story about a summer he'd spent as the pastor of a small church in the Western Highlands of Scotland. While he was there, he and the clerk of session went to a presbytery meeting in the next village. Now, you may have heard or have firsthand knowledge that presbytery meetings here in East Tennessee can be long, drawn-out, sometimes contentious affairs that include ministers and elders from 80 different churches. This one in Scotland involved seven ministers and seven laypeople from the churches in that area. They took care of the business that was before them in about 20 minutes, and then they got down to the real purpose of their meeting, which was the evening meal. It was a very pleasant affair, Buchanan said, with good conversation. They were so interested in his ministry in America and so eager to tell him about theirs in Scotland. At the end of the meal, their custom was to celebrate communion together. The minister who presided was an older man by the name of Johnny Blair. As an invitation to the sacramental table, he read this story of the two on the road to Emmaus and how they recognized Jesus when he broke the bread. He closed his Bible and then told a story John Buchanan says he'll never forget. 
Johnny Blair was an infantryman with the Scots Guard who went to France with the British Expeditionary Forces in the early days of World War II. Retreating back to Dunkirk, he was captured and spent the next five years in a series of prisoner of war camps, each one, he said, more dismal than the last. Near the end of the war, supplies ran low and the Germans reduced food rations to a piece of moldy bread and thin soup. And then finally, only the watery soup. Men began to get sick and die. The situation was beyond hopeless. Some tried to escape and were executed. Others threw themselves into the electrified barbed wire fences to end their suffering. A few days before their liberation, Blair decided that he might as well do that himself. But as he approached the fence in the dark of night, he realized he was not alone. There was a man on the other side, a Polish farmer, The man threw something over the fence and Blair picked it up. It was a potato. Out of the darkness, the man said in broken English, the body of Christ. He comes, Beekner says, out of nowhere, like the first clear light of the sun after a thunderstorm. If we look only with our eyes, if we listen only with our ears, we see only a gardener or a stranger coming down the road behind us, or a meal like any other. But if we look with our hearts, if we listen with our imagination, we may see what we may see is Jesus himself, the body of Christ. Amen. Let us turn to God in prayer. Oh God, in these early days after the resurrection, we wonder what it all means. We can relate to the women who fled the tomb with terror and amazement. We understand Thomas and his need for proof that would come only by touching the wounds and sealing the nail marks. We understand the fear and confusion that kept the disciples in the shadow cast by closed doors. But we also keep company with the travelers on the Emmaus Road who felt the strange burning of the truth and hope and love weaving into the sadness that consumed them on their walk. We find ourselves in the eternal movement between fear and faith, doubt and conviction, wonder and worry. And we trust that you are present with us, O God. We trust that like the disciples, we will be able to stand and tell the whole message about this life, that love is stronger than hate. Life has the final word over death. Beyond what we can see with our eyes, there is a bond of humanness that draws and keeps us together. Yet we watch with anxiety as so much around us is captured in chaos and death. The war in Ukraine, heated politics, mass shootings and gun violence, natural disasters, disease, and we cry out, how much longer, O God, when will you stop this darkness? In the midst, there are also voices of reason and peace. Perhaps they speak in whispers, but they speak nonetheless. God, may those whispers rise to shouts that proclaim the way forward 
with words and not weapons. As the machines of greed and war trample the world and its peoples, we remember that there are seeds of justice and love, goodness and grace that are planted and watered every moment of every day. And so we pray for those who will attend the Nehemiah Action on Tuesday and all those who have worked hard to seek justice in our community. We give thanks for community leaders and elected officials who work to ensure our community is a safe, just place and pray that they may continue to be strengthened to lead and seek healing and justice for those who continue to suffer. We pray for those who experience homelessness, hunger, poverty, addiction, mental illness, racism, those that feel forgotten, lost, or abandoned. Oh God, embolden our hearts to step up, embolden our voices to speak up for our neighbors. We lift up those who need your healing grace. Ann Hart Murian, Joseph Redding, Bill Mentier, those in our own lives. Strengthen them on their road to healing. And we give thanks for new life and a baby born to Gideon and Brooke. And we pray for health and many blessings as this little family welcomes Zeke. God, strengthen us as we stand and bear witness to this whole life, the life of the risen one. And now hear us as we pray that prayer your son taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now let us worship God through our tithes and offerings. <laughs> 